fitness is your ability to cope with and recover from stress. And stress is an inevitable factor in your life and in the lives of the people in your organization. A fit, healthy team is an energized, effective team, but it is not enough to just tell your people what to do, you need to show them. If you want your people to have a better quality of life and a more rewarding career, then it is vital that you lead from the front. Your choices, your behaviors are in the spotlight. My name's Jay Unwin, it's time to get fit to lead. Welcome back to Fit to Lead with me, Jay Unwin. This week I'm chatting to occupational therapist and NIHR clinical doctoral research fellow and old mate of mine, Chris Lovegrove. We chat about the importance of compassion in leadership, the wisdom of Marvel movies, and his work surrounding anxiety in those living with Parkinson's. Hey Chris, how are you doing? I'm good, thank you Jay, I'm good. How about yourself? I'm, I'm really good, mate. I'm really good. I, um, like, as I was saying just before we started recording, I haven't been feeling too, too sharp recently, you know, such is the time of year. And, uh, and I'm feeling a lot better this week. And I'm, you know, you know, when you, you forget what it feels like to feel well or feel like yourself. And then, yeah. uh, and then oh, suddenly, yes. <laughs> yeah, you get over whatever it was that was ailing you. And you're like, oh, wow. Yeah. This is how I'm supposed to feel. Yeah. Oh, yes. I, yeah. I, I saw something on the internet a little while ago that, um, uh, that there's a, a point in your life when you become an adult where you you feel a bit tired one day and then it just never goes away. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, that yeah, that, that's yeah, that sounds familiar. <laughs> yeah. It does. Oh, oh, aging. Yeah. Um, it's it's great to have you on, Chris. Um, as especially as a, a friend from the old days as well, someone who's obviously working in kind of. Uh, in the health and well-being sphere but also um, yeah someone I'm, I was just trying to think like the first time I probably met you I reckon I was probably about 14 I reckon yeah yeah so that'd be about right yeah yeah a long it's time a, back back in the old music ago. days um, but uh, yeah what is so tell me a bit about what you're up to at the moment like what is it that you do now so at the moment, um, I'm currently um, an NIHR, which stands for the National Institute for Health Research. Um, I'm an NIHR Clinical Doctoral Research Fellow based at the University of Plymouth. Um, so I, I won a, a big sort of national grant um, earlier this year, or I was awarded it, should I say, um, to take up doing my own sort of research project. So I do that now full time, doing that for the next three years. Um, so I'm doing a research project uh, to uh, develop a new intervention to help people with Parkinson's uh, live well with anxiety. Wow. And as part of that role, I um, work one day a week clinically as an occupational therapist at the uh, Royal Devon and Exeter Hospital. Um, I've been an occupational therapist now for crikey coming up to 12 years, which again makes me feel where's the time time going yeah. um so that that's that's my sort of like professional background and i specialize in uh, neurology and movement disorders so yeah that's what i'm sort of currently up to at the moment so i do about four days a week uh focusing on my own research uh, a day a week working clinically and then all the other sort of professional bits that i uh, that i do and involve myself in uh, around that 
a busy, busy man and a busy, busy man. It keeps me off the streets, which is probably best for everyone. Yeah, it so. is. It is. It's <laughs> you know, it's uh, it's it's essentially community service, isn't it? Really. Um, yeah. <laughs> what's uh, for for anyone who's listening to this who doesn't know what does what what do you actually do? Uh, like, what's an occupational therapist? I mean, it's a term that most people are probably familiar with, but not everyone is is clear on what that actual role is. So, uh, what's a what's a simple way of putting it? A simple way of doing it that I explain to people is an occupational therapist helps people to participate meaningfully in their life in the way that they want to. Um, so that sounds quite open and in a lot of ways it is. Uh, but I sort of work with people to help them do the things that they want to do and to use the actual doing of something that's important and meaningful to somebody as, as an intervention to improve somebody's health and well-being. Um, so to give an example uh, from my work in neurology, um, which will hopefully help give it some context, um, I worked years ago with somebody, uh, a young man who'd had a, a traumatic brain injury falling down the stairs, had a lot of um, right upper limb sort of uh, what we call spasticity or high muscle tone. This person really, really struggled to manage that, but they'd always had a wish to or a drive to learn to play the guitar. So luckily, being a musician myself and working with a creative um, arts therapist at the time, we played music together. We sort of taught him how to play the guitar in an adapted manner. Um, and then that had the impact on helping him develop sort of motor control in his arm, gain more sort of uh, reduce the spasticity in his arms. So he was able to use that then uh, in more um, sort of meaningful activities of daily living for himself. So that's a, a brief bit about sort of what I do as an occupational therapist. But um, the nice thing about occupational therapists is that they kind of work where, anywhere where there is are, are people really um i've worked in services for homeless young people mental health services i have colleagues that work in social services um private practice uh community projects such as working with um people from other cultures who have sort of uh, refugees who are sort of getting used to the cultural aspect of, of shifting and living in a different environment so it's really really diverse it's a really really diverse profession there's there's a lot more to it than I realised <laughs> from that answer. Yes. There's a, so much more to, to it than I realised, and that's um, yeah, it's really fascinating. It sounds like an incredibly rewarding thing to do. Um, so I'm gonna I'm, I was going to say the first question. I've already asked you a couple of questions. Normally, I don't kind of get that in depth at the start with what someone does. It usually comes up kind of through the conversation. But I thought it was really really important to to give people a mm. kind of an indication of what you do and why that's important to, to you know what I talk about um, but the kind of the big question which I start with asking everyone is what does fitness mean to you that is a good question what does fitness mean to me I, I think fitness means to me more than just physical capacity and physically being well um, I think fi fitness for me means having a a level that you, of of ability and capacity in your spiritual well-being, your physical well-being, your mental well-being, psychological well-being that you are satisfied with that gives you capacity to do the things that you want to do and to live well. Um, so I think for me, that's what fitness would be. Um, I think it's very easy to perhaps go down towards a line of being fitness is all about the physical. Um, I work with a lot of people who aren't physically capable of perhaps achieving a level of physical fitness that you or I or somebody that um, didn't have sort of really a high level of physical impairment um, 
would be able to, you know, who, who doesn't have a high level of physical impairment be able to achieve. But I would still class them as fit because they lead enriched, fulfilled lives, doing the things that they want to do, um, albeit in sort of different ways. So I think for that's what fitness, when I hear the term, that's what it, it means to me. That's what I understand it to be. What does fitness for me mean? I think it's very similar, to be actually honest. I think it's having the physical, the mental, the psychological, the spiritual sort of capacity and well-being to participate in my life in a way that's meaningful and that helps me be satisfied with sort of my position as an actor on the world stage, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. It makes a lot of sense. It's very it's very aligned with kind of how I look at it as well. And I said this on a podcast recently where I get more and more... Um, answers which are quite similar to yours um, uh, albeit worded differently or with different examples used and things like that but um, the, the the idea that fitness is more than just physical um, your physical ability and also like I mean it was even for a long time probably more limited than just looking at physical ability but to, to mm. specific physical abilities like being able to run a certain distance or a certain speed or lift yes. weights in the gym or um, or have certain body composition and, and shape and things like that as well um, which can all be part of it for certain individuals if that's what they if that's what they choose to kind of focus on um, and I guess, I guess when I when I ask people that question, I always assume that it's going to be. I assume less now because I've asked it so many times. I always assume that it is going to be that kind of imagery. Mm. Um, but I guess that I kind of attract the people who <laughs> who have a similar opinion to me. Um, but yeah, it's it's so it ties in kind of with what you do as a as an occupational therapist and that side of what you do because essentially you're helping people discover their version of fitness um, because you're trying to help them uh, get get more from their life right absolutely yeah absolutely and I, I think your I think your wording there of helping people to discover is is really powerful and that's a really key point for me um, sort of the the position that sort of that I, I take personally and professionally and, and the position of the um, of, of my profession is that a person is an expert in their own life. Yeah. So it's about empowering and giving people the tools to do the things they want to do rather than going in and saying, okay, you need to do X, Y, and Z to, to achieve whatever it is you want to achieve. Because quite often you're not meaning, well, you're not meaning me involving somebody in that point if you're directing and giving them instruction. Whereas if you're supporting somebody to redesign their lifestyle or adapt something or take the first steps towards taking part in something that they really want to do you know you're you're giving people the um the sort of the reins and the control to do that of their own volition and people people tend to be more um more willing to do stuff that they've chosen to do than stuff that they've been instructed to do i mean Absolutely. at least in my experience i don't know I, I don't know whether this is just me but i i, I find that if i'm told to do something even if it's something which prior to being told i've decided that i should probably do as soon as someone tells me to do it i'm like no nah, fuck that i'm not doing it now yeah. like even if i was <laughs> gonna do it i'm like my knee-jerk response is no screw you i'm not doing i'm not doing that um 
a la Rage Against the Machine. Um, but <laughs> it, it, do you know what I mean? It's, it's I know very much what you mean. I, yeah. I, I feel like that's a human thing and not just a me thing. Um, I feel like humans don't do well with um, with authority generally. Um, I don't think we've got a problem with authority when it's done in a like you said, meaningful. I think that's the that's the key word there, isn't it? If mm. it's done in a meaningful way, an understanding way, and a very personal way. But then that's not authority in the same way, is it? This kind of leadership, and that can be from anyone in any walk of life and in any kind of relationship that you're in, whether it's a professional relationship, a personal relationship, everyone can show leadership. Um, so it's not really the same as authority, is it? But we've got this thing about authority figures where um, I think what it comes down to, as I, as I kind of, as I say it, this kind of idea is formulating in my head. I wonder if it's because if we're told to do something, our immediate assumption is that we're being told to do it because it benefits the other person, not us. Mm. Mm. And and whereas if we get to choose what the plan is with support from experts, but we get to choose, then we know we're doing it for our benefit in our own lives. And yes, you know, they, arguably that could be selfish, but I think there is a necessity to be a certain level of selfish in order to look after ourselves and so i think yeah giving people the choice and the autonomy to do what they think is best for them with guidance from someone who who knows the kind of ins and outs on a more technical level um is probably the right balance yeah i i yeah, I I would uh, I would agree with that, and a way that I always sort of view it as well when I'm working with people is, you know, as a clinician, say I'm going to see a person who's who's just been sort of referred to me for whatever reason, um, you know, I go in thinking, you know, I'm I'm this is the first time I've ever met this person, I you know, I'm meeting them at a very vulnerable position in their lives, um, and they're the expert in their life sort of who am I to go in and tell people what they should be doing how they should be adapting things adjusting thing adjusting things uh that's you know I might be a qualified professional so to speak but this person has their own their own lives their own things that they do their own loved ones families networks a whole history a whole story behind that moment where we've just interacted um same with my teams as well the teams that I've led you know I you go on a Monday and at 8.15, whatever, 8.15 to 4.30, you work with this group of people. But there's that recognising that the people you're working with, sure, they're with you there and, and in sort of like the hierarchy, you might be the team lead and you're supporting sort of somebody or, or helping somebody, leading somebody. But it's that, for me, there's that recognition that this, this is still a person with a life, a history, a story around them. And I think for me, as a combination of an occupational therapist, a researcher and my leadership roles... I think it's really important to recognise that everybody has a story and actually I, you, know, you need to respect and acknowledge that if you're going to support somebody to develop them to be their best self. This is something that I come across a lot when I'm speaking to kind of um, team leaders in, in businesses is that generally, generally the intent is, is good um, in terms of wanting to support their team uh, in, in, a, in a meaningful way and in a way which kind of helps them be well. Um, yes, there's always a kind of, I guess, corporate motivation as well because mm -hmm. it's like you want your team to be productive and it, it doesn't, it's not something I'm entirely comfortable with because it does seem to put this kind of 
um, like productivity and this idea of people as a um, as a commodity and mm. uh, as a kind of resource to be mined and to be used oh, for yes. for the for the ends of uh, making a profit. Um, which isn't something that I'm massively, massively keen on, but hey, this is the, this is the structure that we live within. Um, but on a personal level, most people in leadership positions, they're, they're human beings. They've still got human emotions. They genuinely, most, most people, I genuinely believe 99.999% of people, um, really do care about other people. And sometimes mm-hmm. they just get a bit bogged down in, in other stuff and work and things like that um, but they do care and so if you're in a position of leadership you do care whatever your team might think of you as a leader the intent is usually that you that, that you care about those people and um, I wonder again whether if, if a leader hears oh this is a certain thing which another company are doing or another leader's doing which is having really great results and they take that as a kind of cookie cutter thing and try and implement it in their own team what they're doing is they're kind of ignoring those individual stories that you're talking about and expecting there to be this this one size fits all approach where you go okay what would this is what we're doing now and this is how I'm going to support you rather than actually speaking to each individual person and listening to what they uh, what they need and I know that when you've got a big team, like if you've got five people in your team, that's one thing, you know, you can speak to all of them. You get to know them a a lot better than say, if you've got 50 people in your team, Mm. of course, we've only got a finite amount of time, a finite amount of energy. And so if we've got 50 people, we're not going to get to know them as well as if we've got five people in our team. However, there are still ways of really listening to those people, whether it's five people, 50 people, 500 people, 5,000 people, you can get that information. Um, and you can learn about those stories to whatever degree is is possible and then include that in how you decide to implement the stuff that you've learned yeah yes no absolutely yeah i i agree and i think i've got a, a, an example that i can kind of i i prefer often using examples for me because it grounds things a little bit more in reality yeah and the things you're saying there about sort of you know, recognizing the individuals and learning about the people you're working with and things like that. So, so last year, around sort of beginning of last year, I uh, decided I needed to do something a bit different in my my career at the time. I have, after having worked in um, acute and subacute um, services for quite a long time, so I I applied for a job as the um, as a clinical lead um, occupational therapist in one of uh, the community rehabilitation teams in my locality. Very fortunate that I. Um, was successful in that role and that started and just as I literally started my role about a month prior um, COVID-19 hit so that sort of the pandemic hit so I ended up moving into a role I've been a clinical lead in various capacities for about five years in my career but I was moving into a leadership role in an area that I was completely unfamiliar with I'd never worked what well, the last time I'd worked in a community service was nearly was pushing eight nine years prior and the sort of the, the landscape of health and social care had changed substantially in that time so I, I went into this into this sort of leadership role in a totally new area when a sort of a once in a lifetime international health crisis was just kicking off so I was like okay cool great great timing Chris well yep, done on you that do pick your moments. yeah absolutely and I kind of went into it thinking you know I, I'm I'm, I say I'm fortunate in my career. I've worked really hard to get to where I am. But, you know, I, I have 
clinical experience. I have a good reputation in the field that I work in. I've achieved different sort of things. And I was thinking, you know, sort of reflecting, I could do one of two things here to develop sort of my leadership skills. I could go in being very confident and this is what we're doing. And I know, you know, this is, I've done this and that and that. So we're going to take this approach to things and be very directive. Um, and that's that's not naturally my leadership style anyway, but I always challenge myself on to when I'm going into new situations on how I'm going to um, approach them. And I, I sort of really thought, no, actually, I think the best thing to do as a leader in this situation is go in with my hands up saying I've got a lot to learn. So I took the approach of, you know, actually, I've gone into this team. I've got experience. This is what I specialize in. But compared to all of you, who a lot of people in this team have worked there for 10 plus years, I'm absolutely a new boy. So I, I, and I was very open with the team saying, you know, I'm probably going to come to you with questions because I don't know this. I don't know that. I'm relying on your expertise. You know, you're all, you're all professionals. You all have varying levels of it, um, of experience. But when it comes to the community and working in a community setting, you all have vastly much more experience than I do in this situation. So I really took an approach of more, um, I guess you'd perhaps call it collaborative leadership. So when you were saying about this is what we're going to do, this is how we're going to do it, I very much had, you know, took the approach of discussing that with the team, feeding back to the whys and the wheres, you know, managing those sort of conversations between people. Um, because I felt actually the situation was so stressful anyway with COVID and there were so many changes being thrust upon the service that were outside of our control that as a leader, I felt it was really, really important to actively involve the team, the people that I was leading, my colleagues, in as many decisions as possible to, to, to draw on their experience, which is really, really, really valuable. Um, so... I think I'd really relate to what you were saying, Jay, about sort of recognising people for who they are um, and really sort of trying to tap into that as a... Uh, well, just trying to tap into that. I was going to say as a resource, but it's interesting what you were saying about, you know, this this corporate structure of utilising people, um, how, how people are utilised. And, I, you know, I think you can just... Just the term human resources is very objectivist just in its... Just in its own in, Don't get me in the language, on that, yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I think you know, I think we're rapidly moving into an era where, well, I, I certainly hope so, and I can see it happening more and more and more in the work that I do, where this objectivist view of looking at people as a resource that is to be used by an organisation, corporation, whatever, to just achieve an end goal. I think that's you know, it seems to be rapidly falling out of favour. It certainly is in the NHS. You know, the, the organisations I work for are taking a much, much, you know, more active approach in promoting well-being amongst the workforce and within their colleagues. And, you know, I just I just can't see coming from my personal experience, my philosophical background in the in my profession, how you how can you lead effectively or instigate change effectively if you aren't valuing and respecting people's stories and who they are and involving them in a meaningful manner that's beyond purely tokenistic. I mean, I'm sure we've all been in situations where we've been in meetings or consultations or whatever in an, an organisation or a work setting. And I, I use consultation in, in sort of apostrophes. And it's it's tokenistic. It's essentially a way of them telling you this is what's going to happen. You get an opportunity to say 
if you're happy, unhappy with something, but actually there's no meaningful change instigated off the back of that. And I think for me, that's where uh, I'm waffling a bit, but I think for me, that's the most important thing is if you're going to involve people, it needs to be done in a meaningful, in a meaningful and compassionate way. I think that, that, by the way, never apologize for waffling because um, anyone who's anyone who's listened to enough of these episodes will know that I am not uh, not averse to the odd waffle. Um, so <laughs> the other thing, actually, on that front, um, as uh, he says, going off on another tangent to follow <laughs> your tangent, um, when you go off like that, that's where quite a lot of the value comes from, I think. So um, it's why I don't edit these and it's why, like I've, mm. I've said, you know, it's very much conversational because I think that when you go off and you're, you're, it's a very, very much a kind of um, uh, a train of thought that you just happen to be verbalizing. Yeah. Um, some really interesting stuff comes out. And, and there was a couple of words there which you used which really, um, really jumped out because. I think I think you and I have both overused the word meaningful already in this conversation because it's important, but I think we've used it a lot. Now, there were two other words which you used there. One was value and one was uh, compassion. Mm. Uh, compassion, I think, is, is just it's so important because... Um, Absolutely. It's a basic, it's a basic human um, kind of... I would say it's not really an emotion. A basic human uh, skill? I don't know characteristic I don't know what the word is but compassion is something that I think that we all have um, we just have it beaten out of us because all kids have compassion before they can speak they understand mm-hmm. you know they understand kind of you know you know if you're a parent and you've got like a, a, a kid that's like 18 months old and you're upset that kid knows that you're upset Absolutely. and they try and comfort you they understand that before they understand anything that's more, um, I guess, rational and rigid that we teach them. They understand compassion. And I think that we get it not beaten out of us deliberately, but I think it get, it gets beaten out of us by um, reality. Reality and the, the kind of society that we live in, which is very full on, let's be honest. It is, mm. it is intense. It's an intense existence these days compared to... Uh, when we evolved as human beings um, we've got a lot more going on we've got a lot more to deal with we've got more mm. plates spinning than just finding food and reproducing you know mm. um, and so we're so caught up in all of this stuff all of this stuff that we that we forget about our compassion we lose that um, we lose the ability or we just misplace it and we can find that again we can discover that again we can rekindle that compassion and realise actually yeah you know what more than anything else, I care about people. And this this thing, this this compassion, is the foundation of like altruism. And altruism, as uh, as this kind of um, you know caring for others and and cooperation and stuff like that, is what's allowed us to build uh, societies and civilizations. Now, arguably, our societies and civilizations that we've built are far from perfect. Mm. Um, that's a conversation for another day because you and I, I know, could. Uh, could could wax, wax lyrical. lyrical. There we go. Look at that. Hey, <laughs> jinx. Um, that wasn't planned, guys. That wasn't planned. Um, but so I'm not going to get into putting the world to rights there. But uh, the cooperatives that we built in the early days, the tribal kind of days of evolution, allowed us to develop as a species. 
So that altruism, that compassion is a vital evolutionary skill. And, and we still have that. Um, the other word, value, that's a really interesting one because you said about leadership and about how can we just kind of dictate this stuff to people without valuing them and their stories. And value is, is, is an incredibly powerful thing. And it's, it's incredibly powerful in two directions because using you as an example again in that leadership role, when you valued those people who were already in that team, you valued their skills, their experience, you valued their professionalism, and that gave you access to a whole host of skills and expertise that you don't have. Mm, absolutely. Right? So you get a huge amount of benefit from valuing them. But the other direction is there is something incredibly uplifting about feeling valued. Mm insanely insanely powerful stuff if you feel valued as a member of a team you are far more likely to do your best work I'm, i mean i'm not I'm, I'm loath to say that as the first thing but when we're talking about teams and organizations an organization a company a, a group working together for a, a common goal that's essentially what you're doing you're working together and you will do your best work if you feel valued because you feel um, you feel like you you want to step into that identity. You feel like I've I've been given um, these boots to fill. I'm being valued, so I want to do my best work, and that that obviously benefits everyone. But also, you get so much more fulfilment from doing your best work. Mm. No one likes mm. doing a shitty job. No one feels good doing less than doing something that they know they could have done better. Nobody likes that. But yet we get, we slip into that when we don't feel valued because we're just like, I ain't doing my best for you. You don't care. Mm. And, and, and nobody benefits from that. The organization doesn't benefit and the individuals feel rubbish because they come home from work going, I just like, I did the bare minimum to not lose my job. And that's yeah. rubbish for self-esteem. So if you feel valued, if, if as a leader you, you show how much you value these people, they are going to, they are going to step into that. And it's, it's like um, perhaps some leaders are, are fearful that if they don't, if they're not dictating what to do, if they're not authoritarian in their, in their manner, people won't do their best. But actually, it's the other way around, or at least it is in my experience. I mean, my experience is, is obviously limited. It's only from my own perspective. Um, but that's definitely what I've come across. Yeah, I, I think that's a good point. And I think also what you're saying about sort of that people, that point about leaders and how people are sort of behaving and so on, I think also there's perhaps there's quite a historic sort of stereotype to that that a leader has to be you know someone who's in position and they're very stern and they rah, 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 you know this you know the old the idea of the old sort of doctor or the matron marching onto the ward being feared and you know free bags full and all that sir which is you know that's that's coming from my context of working in healthcare but i i certainly think that's starting to change now that idea of what what a leader is and moving from being sort of like the bulldog who you you know you do what they say when they say it and there's sort of no questions to to leaders being people who are more yeah compassionate and i think that's the only way that i can put it but not necessarily compassionate from a position of 
feeling sympathy or or pity for somebody else, you know, because that implies a position of charity, doesn't it? Compassion more with an empathetic perspective to it. So people actually empathizing with the people that they work to, you know, still having that boundary that, you know, we're here and there is this job or this role that needs to be fulfilled and we need to do it. But recognizing that human value and that human perspective and that personal perspective um, of it as well. Um, I certainly think when I, the last year when I was, you know, helping to lead the team um, that I was, you know, I was really acutely aware of all of my colleagues well-being um so you know just checking that people were okay you know having a a bit of a a grasp on what was sort of going on in people's lives because you know it's it's archaic to think that what happens outside of work doesn't affect what's going on inside of work um and ultimately when it boils down to it i just wanted my colleagues to be okay more than anything else that was my primary option I, i i strongly feel that nobody deserves to live miserably for whatever reason um, but you know, having that awareness of what's going on in people's lives and trying to promote where where I could, as challenging as it was during what was going on, particularly last year and what's still going on, you know, that's that's where you can really help people to bring the best out of them, out of themselves as a as, as a person, as a as a as a employee, whatever, in the limits of whatever you've got going on at the time. Um, you know, I, I just as a leader, I don't see how you can't acknowledge that and I think if you take the line of you're here to do a job you've signed the contract blah, 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 and you know you take that really hard line approach I don't think you're going to do anything more than suppress people's abilities and want to do a good job and ultimately you're not going to retain people that way yeah I think you're right that it is I think again that the word archaic you know it's it's a very old-fashioned way of doing things and I think people are a lot more savvy these days um, uh, people understand their needs people understand their um i mean not entirely of course we're we're still very complex creatures and we don't always understand what it is that we want and need but i think we do more so than perhaps in the past and also as society progresses society has become um society's not perfect by any stretch um there's a there's a huge amount of inequality there's a huge amount of Mm. of uh, division but i believe that um a lot of the kind of chaos that perhaps we're seeing um, is is almost a reorganisation of things as people become, you know, less and less happy with the status quo. And yeah, you've, we've still got billionaires flying into space and stuff like that, which is, I say still, obviously, that's a fairly recent <laughs> thing. Um, but it's it's like, yeah, you've got people who can afford... I mean, I remember I saw a story recently um, about Jeff Bezos bought another house. Uh, he spent, I think it was about 150 million or 115 million, something like that, on uh, on on, a, on another house. Um, and when someone worked it out based on his net worth and his income and so on and so forth, mm-hmm. that's the equivalent of someone on an average wage um, in the UK buying a house for 75 quid. Mm. And it was over a million. Uh, no, yeah, no, over a hundred million, in fact. Um, and and you just think, wow, that's like I can't even get my head around these numbers. So yeah, of course, no, they're impossible. They're impossible figures to kind of like comprehend. They are. They are. We, our brains are not set up for this. Um, but it's like it, it's yes, there's inequality, and yes, there's a huge kind of divide between rich and poor. Yes, there's people who are starving, and other people who are buying houses for stupid money and flying into space, but. From a human perspective, I believe that we're still seeing great progress in that 
people won't stand for being treated in a way which perhaps used to be the norm. Mm-hmm. Right? So when when you were looking at um, industrial revolution, and a lot of our kind of systems are still set up on a very industrial revolution um, kind of basis, if mm-hmm. you like, um, things like the, the, the idea of clocking in and out and you have to be on the production line kind of thing, where a lot of jobs now, they, they, they treat it like a production line when in actual fact a more flexible working schedule and even a smaller working schedule for the same pay would actually benefit everyone, including the business owners. Yeah, yeah. Um, but we're still stuck in this way of doing things from, from the kind of 1800s. Um, there were things that improved in that it went from like seven days, 12 hours to five days, eight hours, which was, I think, I want to say it was like someone like Henry Ford or someone like that mm-hmm. who changed who changed the model there. Um, and it was just like, we'll give them two days off. And that at the time was probably seen to be absolutely ludicrous. And other business owners and uh, especially industrial business owners like Henry Ford was going, uh, by the way, I might be completely wrong whether it was him or not. Um, but they, they were like, this is, this is crazy. You're going to lose... You're going to lose two full days of productivity, and you're taking you're taking a third off every remaining day. Yeah, like yeah. how are we gonna how are we gonna run a successful business doing that? And I'm seeing the same thing now when people are going. People are talking about things like a four day working week, um, which has been trialed in a number of places and has worked very well. And this is not a four day working week with a twenty percent pay reduction. This is a four day working week, so twenty percent less hours but with the same pay mm. and they're actually being more productive uh, yeah yeah uh, because they're getting three days off and they're so much more refreshed and they've got a better quality of life and they're coming in and doing better work but you're still having the same pushback that would have happened back a hundred years ago when they when they when they looked at changing it to five days a week where they were just going that's that's mad how can we possibly survive as a business and I believe that as time goes on that will become the norm now I don't think that four days a week will become the norm I think that there will be variations. I think you will have four days a week. I think you will have five days a week, but only five hours a day. I think you'll have um, completely flexible working schedules for for jobs which allow it. And you think about some things like if you're a if you're a, if you're working in a graphic design role for a company, why does it matter what hours you work as long as the work is done? Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter as long as the work's done by the deadline. It doesn't matter if you're working, you know eight till one or you know working four days a week or you're working um 9 p.m until 2 a.m in the morning it really why does it matter Mm. it doesn't you don't need to clock in and out in the same way and yes of course there are still roles which require you to be on the floor you know uh, roles which in the public sector things like nursing and and um and pretty much any any role i guess within uh, kind of healthcare and stuff like that you need to be there to deal with the people and and of course there are there are jobs in the private sector which are the same way it's like even if you're answering phones you need to be there at that time to man the phone lines at the time the phone lines are open i get that i'm not saying that every job would would work in this way but i believe we're in this transition period now and the reason that this is happening to uh to try and tie this tangent back into where we started (laughs) possibly i told you this would happen um is the people are not willing to be used as a resource. Yeah. They want to be valued. They know they know their inherent value or people are starting to wake up to their value as a person and go, I'm worth more than this. 
I'm worth more than just this 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 um, mundane going through the motions kind of thing. I want to be seen for my abilities, my skills, my value, my worth. Absolutely. Um, and uh, I think that the last 18 months has pushed this even more because people have got a taste of things like remote work, hybrid work, um, yeah. flexible hours, what they do when they've got more time. They go, and I, you know, I also mad. think I also think on the flip side of it as well over the last 18 months, not, not meaning to be sort of flip the negative but something that lots of colleagues have said to me and friends who've changed careers moved careers gone to do something else entirely different is the the one comment that has come across time and time again is life's too short yes i think there's i think there's all of those other elements that you talk about the sort of value wanting to do something you know wanting to be listened to heard to be you know have that feeling of sort of personal effectiveness is all really really important i also think that Unfortunately, the last 12 months, I know several people who have lost loved ones, colleagues due to sort of COVID-19. And that's made people realize, actually, you know, I do have a limited, I have a limited timeline on on this planet. I haven't, you know, I, I don't have forever. And actually, I want to be using the time that I have meaningfully i want to test that word again yeah. i want to be using it's it meaningfully word, i want to have value you know i want to have you know satisfaction i want to live well and sort of not just be a, a cog in a machine so i think there's that element of well over the pandemic that's uh, certainly had an influence but I've, I've certainly felt it i've certainly had that 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 realization sort of over the last 12 months i've you know everybody's had a lot of loss but personally i've you know had a long-term relationship come to an end we've had had four bereavements within our family in the space of 12 months and it just makes you think as well as having colleagues become dangerously unwell with COVID-19 and it just makes you think yeah you know life is too short and I I have this I I have limited time here on this globe of rock that's hurtling through the void at a rate of knots and I need to I you know it's not right to live on that and live a life that's sort of meaningless or unfulfilled and not have that feeling of satisfaction so i think that's you know the last 12 months have put that into perspective for a lot of people i agree and i think that mortality is um is one of the most powerful things that we can kind of reflect on and and consider because we're it's something i always talk about quite often talk about i mean i either write about read about talk about or at least think about death every single day that's mm. something that i that i have kind of gone into the habit of doing people have called me morbid and uh, and perhaps i am but the 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 reason i do it is because anything which has value has that value because of its scarcity yes if yeah. something if something is infinite if we have an infinite supply of something it is worthless um on a kind of an obvious financial level for example you know if if diamonds were in everyone's garden they wouldn't be worth a lot of money right um there are other things which i guess maybe are like uh, exceptions to the rule like uh, i believe that humans have a pretty infinite capacity for for compassion and love Mm. um that doesn't make that any less valuable so there are exceptions but i mean in in a kind of material sense um having lots of something 
means that each of those things is 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 less valuable. And so, if we kind of take that to mean days of your life, if you were immortal and you had unlimited days in your life, each individual day, it'd be like, it wouldn't matter if you wasted it. Now, when well, I talk yeah. about wasting days and stuff, I'm not one of these people who's going, you've got to do it, you've got to live every day like it's your last, because I believe that that would be um, a very dangerous thing to do. <laughs> um, but uh, if, if, you, if you genuinely knew you were going to live forever, there would be no urgency. There would be no value right. to each day. It would be, it'd be, it'd be essentially just worthless in a lot of ways. And, and the fact that we... The fact that we don't, the fact that we only have a limited number of days, and here's the, here's the real kicker, we don't know how many. <laughs> yeah, 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 right, absolutely. <laughs> so that, that adds the extra bit of um, uncertainty and go, well, you know what? I might, have, I might have five years left. I might have five days left. Mm. We don't know. And, and that's what gives our life value. That's what gives our time value is that it is a finite resource. And... and I think that we forget it because, and I, I, I genuinely believe that Western cultures are particularly bad at this. And British, I mean, my, I mean, my own experience is obviously of kind of British culture um, is very much about avoiding thinking about death. Yeah, it's 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 scary. People don't want to think about it. People don't want to talk about it. And that's why when I talk about it or I or I write about it, people are just like, oh, I don't feel really uncomfortable. It's a bit morbid, Jay. And I'm like, yeah, the reason that you're saying that is because you've been conditioned to think it's something taboo. And it's like that's why you're you're so disconnected from it that um, that your life has less meaning. Yeah. And whereas if you remember that you're going to die, you stop wasting your time as much. Mm, and, and I think that you're absolutely right that this last 18 months has been, it's been horrific in many, many ways. Um, you know, I'm not, I'm not taking anything away from that. I'm not one of these people who goes, always look on the bright side um, because that does my nut in. But the, there, is, there, there is a lesson in that difficulty and there is a lesson in that loss of life, of, um, you know, people have lost their livelihoods as well. People have lost um, Roles, freedoms. Routines, people, yeah. yeah. There's, there's, all kinds of, there's all kinds of things that have been lost. But that loss is, is a reminder that you can lose stuff, you know? Yeah. Like nothing is guaranteed and anything can be taken from you. Anything can be taken at, from you, apart from yeah. like your ability to choose how you respond to that. Yeah, okay, are we getting a bit philosophical for a Wednesday morning? We are. It's we? quite deep, isn't it? Crack! I need another coffee in a minute. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like we should be drinking red wine, and it should be two o'clock in the morning. <laughs> I think you make. Yeah, there's some really good points there, and I, I think I remember when, you know, <laughs> it's a. I remember watching. Last year, when I sort of I lost, and sadly, both my sort of remaining grandparents um, uh, died. Um, firstly, going back, I think you're absolutely right. I think in the West we tend to not want to talk about death as much. Even when you look at the sort of the terms we use in hospitals, or oh, somebody's passed on, they've moved on, passed away, they died. You know, why, why can't we just say they've died? It's yeah. you know, it's the only certainty that we that we we really have in life is that you're going to die someday. Death and taxes, um, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah, quite absolutely. Um, but the, the point, I, and and you know, other cultures typically have a much more um, 
death and, and talking about death is much more integrated into their yeah especially indigenous society. cultures it's especially yeah especially yet yeah, first people cultures they they you know they all you know death is part of it and anyway um so anyway i yeah sadly both my sort of remaining grandparents died last year and i was i had one of these you know i come from work i think it was in the second lockdown um and you know my grandfather had just died and obviously we were in mourning we were still you know sort of had like an increase in grief from sort of losing my gran earlier in the year or my gran dying earlier in the year should i say and i remember thinking i'm just gonna you know i need to take some time for myself don't think about work don't think about research look after yourself a bit and let these feelings wash over you let them let them um yeah let these feelings kind of like wash wash over you and i kind of i I was watching a film and (laughs) i i I like science fiction and all these sorts of films. And anyway, I decided, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to watch one of the Marvel films. I'm going to watch, um, I ended up putting on the, the Avengers Age of Ultron. I'm not sure if I'm allowed to say branded trademarked names on here, but I have. Mate, I, I, I don't think we're quite at that level yet. <laughs> and, um, anyway, I remember watching it and great film for people that want those sorts of things. But there's a, a point at the very end of the film where Ultron, who's this kind of like rogue AI made by Iron Man who kind of goes off on, you know, trying to destroy the Avengers and all this sort of stuff. There's a point at the end where he's kind of dragging his sort of like tattered husk up a hill um, and he meets one of the other superheroes that's been kind of made... Uh, vision. Sort of a vision. He meets Vision. And they have this back and forth and, you know, and there's a point in it where Vision says, um, a thing isn't beautiful because it lasts. And I found that at the time that was an incredibly emotional thing to hear. But that's also so true, isn't it? The the, the reason that things are, are beautiful and they're wonderful, and they're meaningful, are essentially because at some point they end. Yeah. And if they if they just went on ad, ad ad infinitum, then you wouldn't value them like that. And there's allegories to that in the picture of Dorian Gray. You know, this immortal that's gone on and is finding life sort of increasingly um, sort of mundane and things like that. And yeah, that bit of a tangent, but I think for me that's uh, that. That one quote from Vision in Marvel's uh, Avengers Age of Ultron really sort of hit that that home for me. And it was delivered so beautifully by... Is it it Paul Bettany? Yes, it is. Yeah. Um, I am a big fan of you using a Marvel reference to illustrate (laughs) a very, very serious point. I love that. Um, I went to see see the new Venom movie last night. I know it's not an MCU one, but it was very enjoyable. Um, Slightly slightly different, a bit less, um, uh, I guess, existential. Not not so many... uh, not so many meaningful lines in it, but it was it was enjoyable nonetheless. Um, what I was to, to kind of tie that back in as well, like what's interesting. I mean, we've we talked about this from a very personal perspective. Yes, yeah. Um, and and loss in the sense of losing loved ones and, mm. and people close mm. to us dying. But to 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 kind of tie that back into an arguably much less important, but relevant um kind of i guess arena is if we're talking about if we go back to leadership and we go back to valuing the people that work for us what we were meant to be talking about yet (laughs) (laughs) no we're all of this all of this is all of this is 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 meant to be talked about this is the thing um i i like i like the scope of this because it's all relevant and i think 
this is what, what, what you were just talking about there and about the kind of the challenges that you faced um, on a personal level is a big illustration of understanding people's stories. You know, like everyone has this stuff going on. And if you don't stop and ask them, if you're working with a team, they've, they're having this stuff going on. They're getting ill. They've got relatives dying. They've got relationships ending. They've got all this stuff happening because it is inevitable. All of this stuff is inevitable. And, and if you don't ask about them, you won't know. Um, so it is relevant. It is absolutely relevant. But if we're looking at the kind of valuing, valuing our team, valuing the people that we work with, valuing the people that, 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 are, that we're delegating uh, responsibilities to, those people can be taken from you at any moment by a number of different things. Now, I'm not just talking about them dying, okay? Obviously, that could happen. But they could be, um, they could decide to leave. They could be headhunted by another company. They could... Um, there's all, all kinds of things that could happen. They yes, could become absolutely. unwell, whether that's physically or mentally. They could become so stressed that they burn out and they have to leave the role or, or take three months, six months off. There's all kinds of things which, which can happen. And I think that being aware of that transience of our colleagues will help us value them more in the same way as understanding that the transience of everything is what gives it value. Yes. And, uh, you know, um, what was it? Can, can you give me the vision line again, word for word, because I won't, I won't it's get a, it right. It's a, a thing, and it's off the top of my head, but it's, yeah. it's a, he says, they have the conversation, he says, a thing isn't beautiful because it lasts. There we go. So a thing isn't beautiful because it lasts. A, 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 a thing, like you said, is, is, is beautiful or valuable because it doesn't. And yeah, I think, that, I think that that's a lesson that we can take into all kinds of, we can extrapolate that to, to, to use the same logic and the same, uh, kind of idea in all kinds of areas of our leadership so that we can so that we can value stuff our position as a leader is not set in stone that can be taken from us we mm-hmm. should value being in that role mm-hmm. the people that we're working with the project that we're working on the, the the mission that we're pursuing all of that stuff can be taken and so it's important to value that while we've got it and I think that once we value it, and this comes back to what we said at the start about intent and about the intention and, and the kind of genuinely caring about your people. And most people do genuinely have the intent to, to, to do good. Yes. Yeah. Um, if, if, you, if you keep hold of that and you value everything while you have it, um, I think that you're more likely to act on that intention rather than getting caught up on maybe stuff that's less important, but just kind of takes your attention away, which I think a lot of us do. Yeah, that, I uh, yeah I agree, and it, it 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 ties back to something that I was told once um, is that you know if how do you expect in my role sort of in a caring profession or in a, in a health and sort of social care setting it's sort of like how can you expect people to look after other people if you're not looking after them yeah and that that came from the perspective of you know. Um, I've I've had some challenges with my own mental health in the past. I've had experiences of depression, and you know, I've that's something I talk very openly about because I'm an advocate, very much an advocate for talking openly and transparently about mental health, particularly particularly for for men. 
And I remember sort of having this conversation with, uh, you know, going through sort of counselling at a time and somebody saying to me, you know, how can you look after other people I in my job role if you're not looking after yourself, you know, being very burnt out, not really looking after myself, giving my all for sort of my patients in the organisation. And then when I went through some leadership um, mentoring um, a little while ago, having a conversation sort of about that, just talking about personal experiences and how you can utilise them in being an effective leader. And then somebody saying, you know, it's very much the same, you know, you need to look at it from that perspective of the people you're you're working with, your colleagues, you know, how can you expect your team to look after other people well and effectively if you're not looking after them or looking out for them? And that that was something that really really powerful that helped me reflect on that personal experience and I think that's something that I've really tried to integrate actively into my role as a leader is you know sort of you know obviously I can't look after people look after my team but sort of looking out for them and supporting them to work in ways that is more beneficial towards them is only going to only serves well for improving sort of the outcomes really of, of our service. I think that kind of ties in. You may well have kind of, I guess, answered this question already for for people who are listening. But if there are people listening to this who have uh, who have a team of people working for them and they want to support them better in their kind of physical, mental, fitness, well being, health, mm. um, where would you say? What would you, what would your kind of one piece of advice be, or a good starting point? Um, for for them uh, in the position of leadership, and also the same question for someone who's who's looking to improve their own well being physically and mentally. What would be a good place for them to start? So my one piece of advice for somebody um, would be, you know, from a leadership perspective, would be to to actively listen to people. And I, I purposely purposely say actively listen to people because we can all listen and just not take it on. But I think there's that active listening that is is so important so people know they're being heard and so that you're you're also integrating what people are telling you for me is to really work on being an active listener and to not not oversee the value of having conversations and interactions with people that are unplanned and spontaneous uh, my most valuable conversations with the team that I was leading with my colleagues were the chats we'd have when I was just walking around the office unplanned to just check on everyone and to see how people were getting on with their day. They were the most valuable interactions I had with my team. And as I said, just actively listening um, for, to, to people, making sure that you're, you're hearing their voice and um, what their message is and making sure you're, you're getting that and not making an assumption. With regards to improving sort of steps towards improving, was the second question, one thing to somebody to improve their own yeah so the same question but where rather than supporting other people it's about taking you know taking responsibility and and making improvements for their own physical and mental well-being i would say for that coming my own personal experience as well as my experience as an occupational therapist people need to find what it is that gives them that spark of joy that jeu de vivre to use sort of like the french the french phase something that sparks something in them there's so much evidence now around you know physical activity and all this and improvements on well-being but ultimately it's got to be something that sparks joy on that sparks that meaning uh, within somebody uh, that could be that could be going to the gym i love going to the gym 
and getting back into that has really helped to sort of turn my life around. It could be going for a walk. It could be painting. It's got to be something that really feeds and could nourishes your soul. It could be music. I was just be... thinking we haven't really talked about music enough, given given the background. Yeah, absolutely. But it has to be that thing that sparks that element of you know that that element of feeling alive within you. And you know if that if that's you know somebody yeah music plays a guitar and you haven't picked up the guitar for 12 months and that's something you really used to love doing you know trying to make time for those little things that make you feel alive for me is the thing that would really help to support and serve somebody's health and well-being Uh, for me it's the the last 12 months um it, it does happen to be physical fitness but for me getting back into the gym was that thing that's really helped to spark that feeling of being alive back in me again doing something that and it's it's not the the being physically fit although that i know that does help it's the things that go alongside yeah. that you know it's it's the the the, the 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 psychological benefits the spiritual it's the doing something like you know this is time for me i'm working on this you know i really enjoy setting the goals of moving x amount of weight or getting to whatever point and it's beyond just the physical exercise. It's the it's the things that go alongside it for me. The interactions with other people, you know. Yeah, yeah, and it becomes if you find the right thing, and this varies from person to person, but it becomes a keystone habit in, exactly. in the in that it supports a number of other things. Like people often find if they find a physical activity that they love, they start nourishing their body in a more exactly. um, sustainable way. Or they might find that they've got a better social life. Like you said, it's the interaction with other people. Yeah. So, it, and like you said, it varies from person to person. And that thing is really key that it has to be for you, not for not because someone else is doing it. It has to be for you. That's my thing is find, find the thing that nourishes your, your being and ignites that sort of spark within you. Love that. Um, Chris, if people want to check you out on the internet, um, see what you're up to, follow your research, find out more about what it is that you do, because obviously we haven't talked massively about your um, about the research that you're doing. I mean, feel free to uh, to, to to tell us about that now, um, so, or if you'd yeah. rather just direct people to to kind of your Twitter or anything like that, you can do that as well. I think it's I think that's really worthwhile just talking about it briefly. Yeah, go it for it. Kind of ties into some of our last points that we were talking about, really. So I I specialise in Parkinson's disease, and um, anxiety is a really big issue for people living with Parkinson's disease and sort of the evidence out there at the moment for interventions um, for interventions to help people with Parkinson's anxiety sort of medical interventions and sort of certain talking therapies ranges from kind of ineffective to moderately effective at best and in my clinical practice I worked with a lot of people living with Parkinson's who anxiety was a really big problem for causes lots and lots of different issues anyway sort of the the, the approach that i sort of t- have taken is I, I i was like i want to develop a new intervention i want to help people with parkinson's live well with anxiety the key bit being live well um so they people can manage their anxiety and still do the things they want to do but i've taken the angle of co-producing the intervention with people living with the condition um because again talking about some of the things we've talked about as a leader I need to recognise people's individual experiences. I don't live with Parkinson's. So I'm taking the approach of actually developing the intervention with people living with the condition, having it founded in their experiences. And the intervention I'm going to be doing is talking, relates so much to what we've been talking about. It's focusing on the doing. It's focusing on what is it that's stopping people doing the things that 
nourishes them and that they they love to do that makes them feel like a person and who they are so that's a little bit about my my project in a nutshell um if people use twitter um i i use twitter to sort of promote my research and uh, my twitter tag is at c lovegrove under slash ot uh, so i'm on twitter uh, if people use ResearchGate, i'm just on there as chris lovegrove um, and my orchid id for anybody that knows what that is um is zero 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 three two five three zero one nine eight eight uh if people use orchid id there's a range of sort of keeping track of research that's that so yeah i'm currently working on that project um in the process of actually developing the framework for the intervention at the moment uh we're then going to be testing the intervention in a feasibility randomized control trial for a couple of years um at that point hopefully i'll have finished my phd and i'll be looking uh, at testing it nationally so yeah, a lot going on. Exciting times, mate. And it sounds like a hugely, hugely beneficial area to work in. Um, and I will certainly be uh, following following along your progress with, with great interest. Um, awesome stuff. Uh, what I'll also do is I'll put those links in the show notes as well. So if you're listening to this on Anchor um, or on Spotify or most other services, those will be clickable links. If you're listening to it on Apple, they won't be because Apple doesn't like my links for some reason. I can't <laughs> work out why. Um, so you'll just have to type in that really long number that you just gave you. Um, but yeah, I, like you should, most of you, most of you will be able to click the links and go and find Chris and, and follow along with, with, uh, with all his awesome stuff. Chris, it has been an absolute pleasure. Um, thank you for sticking around a little bit longer than planned as well, because um, I know that you're a busy man. Uh, but I, I enjoyed that conversation immensely. And I think, me too. That, I think that everyone will have got a huge amount of value from your insights. Me too. Thank you so much for inviting me on. It's, uh, you know, it's been great to take part. Thank you for listening to Fit to Lead with me, Jay Unwin. If you're not already connected with me on LinkedIn, come and find me using the link in the podcast description and say hello. If you want me to help you improve the fitness and well-being of your team and of yourself, let's set up a call. Until next time, stay fit, stay well, and keep leading from the front.